the first part of our September After Dark podcast. I'm Emily. And I'm Gemma. This month we are delving into the world of witchcraft and magic. As always, we'll be dividing it between us. Um, Emily is up first and she's going to be looking at prehistory. And then next week I'm going to take over and I'm going to be looking at magic and witchcraft from the advent of Christianity up until today. As it's quite a big undertaking to look at magic from prehistory to today, there will be things we don't cover or we don't look at in depth, but those will likely turn up in blog posts or different podcasts later on, so make sure you keep an eye out for those. So with that said, where are we starting, Emily? So on a History Extra podcast, archaeologist Chris Goston said, magic connects you to the universe. It can be used to answer all the questions of life and death. And this will be important to remember as we look into witchcraft and magic from prehistory to the rise of Christianity. But before we can look into the history of magic and witchcraft, we actually first need to look at its connection to religion. While many today would view magic as either primitive or irrational, over the thousands of years of the human race, magic has been important to the early stages of religions, offering a way to explain the unexplainable. It's been perceived as either wholly opposed to religion or an evolutionary continuum of supernatural beliefs. But the line between magic and religion is often blurred. Take, for example, the idea of miracles. When do they stop being witchcraft? The lack of evidence for magic in the archaeological record proved to be a bit of a stumbling block, as for some cultures, information is thin on the ground until we see the rise of Christianity. Yes, that makes sense, because... like. There is so much magic in religion and like Jesus is thought of as being a, by some as being a magician. It's really difficult to find where that line is. Absolutely. We'll see that continue actually in my, in my next week. So you took prehistory, but whereabouts did you actually start looking for magic and witchcraft? So when we say prehistory, this actually encompasses the Paleolithic, Mesolithic and Neolithic, which spans from around 2.5 million years ago to about 3000 BCE. In this time, our ancestors went from hunter-gatherers to farmers and religion was also believed to have developed in this time too. Now, as early as 95,000 BCE, we find evidence that Neanderthals carefully buried a small child in Iraq in a way that suggests a belief in the afterlife. And 40,000 BCE, we see figures carved with a mixture of human and animalistic figures, uh, features, which may have had either religious or magical meaning to them. The now famous Venus figurines were being carved in the Paleolithic period. Fertility would have been important to these hunter-gatherers and many different ideas on the meanings of the figurines have been suggested. The term itself is used to describe some 200 small figurines of voluptuous female figures found at sites across Europe and Asia. They date from around 40,000 BCE to 10,000 BCE and are generally quite small, but the largest found was 24 centimetres in height. The majority of the figures have been carved from mammoth tusk, but some have been made from bone, teeth, stone and antler. The features of the figures are quite often distorted with breasts and hips being overly accentuated, while the arms, legs, hands, feet, and faces seem to be lacking. Now, researchers have concluded that at the time that these figures were being produced, 
the average woman would likely have been lean and muscular. Therefore, the figures don't actually depict real women, but are some sort of religious item. Now, many of them have holes that would allow them to have been worn, and the average size of them would have allowed them to be easily held in the hand. Researchers have also stated that they may have been used in some kind of fertility ritual, as some have been carved with lunar cycles, which would link them to the menstrual cycle. But this is obviously speculation and other experts and historians believe that they could just represent prehistoric pornography instead. What exactly passes for prehistoric pornography? Apparently these, fi- these figurines because it's naked women. Wow. Isn't the oldest known dildo made from stone or something? Yes. You don't very often come across prehistoric pornography. No. Not that I know of. Unless we're clearly missing something. So is there any other kind of prehistoric art which is important in the hunt for witchcraft and magic? Yes. As far as art goes in prehistory, the majority of examples that we've found in both carvings and cave art depict animals rather than our ancestors themselves. So while cave art was being made up to 80,000 years ago, it wasn't until around 40,000 years ago that the human form was being depicted. And many of the human figures are male or of ambiguous gender. Now it's been speculated that prehistoric religion itself was thought to be animalistic, imbuing the natural world, the landscape and the animals that inhabited it with magical or supernatural powers. Hunting was essential to the survival of the hunter-gatherers. And if we look to other hunter-gatherer tribes today, such as the Inuit of Arctic Canada, we see that hunting is viewed as a sacred act. I guess that makes sense. Even, um, so in the Tudor Mm. times, the first time uh, like a boy kills a deer or something, they're meant to put their hands in the blood, aren't they, to feel the heartbeat or something, and that's meant to be some way of connecting it women would do it because they thought it's something getting warts and ugly hands and stuff so is it only cave art and small statues made in the prehistoric period that point to a religion the argument that animals formed an important part of prehistoric religion can also be seen at the site of gebekli tepe which dates to around eleven thousand years ago and predates stonehenge by some six thousand years it's located near Ufa, an ancient city in southeastern Turkey. The site was excavated from 1994 by German archaeologist Klaus Schmidt, and it spans a thousand feet in diameter and consists of massive carved stones crafted and arranged by prehistoric peoples who were still yet to develop metal tools or pottery. On the hillside, there are four rings of pillars, and each ring has a roughly similar layout. In the centre are two large T-shaped pillars encircled by slightly smaller stones which face inward. They are linked together with coarsely built dry stone walls. Now the tallest pillars are some 16 feet in height and weigh between 7 and 10 tonnes and they were all carved at a quarry site nearby where hundreds of unfinished pillars have also been found. The pillars found at the site are a mixture of blank stone and elaborately carved animals which twist up both sides of the pillar. The animals include foxes, lions, bulls, scorpions, snakes, wild boars, 
vultures, waterfowl, insects and arachnids and some of the carvings are really abstract shapes and there's one relief that depicts a naked woman posed sitting much like a Venus figurine and furthermore some of the T-shaped stones have been carved with what looks like arms and they, they may represent either humans or gods. So why is that site so important? Building this site would have been a huge undertaking for prehistoric hunter-gatherers. The site itself shows no signs of settlement. There are no houses, no rubbish pits and no halves, which means that the prehistoric people were going elsewhere to sleep at night. And the general belief on the development of the prehistoric people was that once our ancestors began to domesticate animals and they began to produce crops, they were able to form religion and religious sites, but Gobekli Tepe turns this theory on its head as the site has no evidence of settlement. So it's almost that um, they needed agriculture and domesticated animals in order to complete the religious buildings that they were making. I think more like a modern idea of having the parish church separate to where people lived. Yeah, but um, the site only stood for about a thousand years and then they filled it in okay. and there's, there's a site um, nearby that has some of the same stones. So it's almost like they'd built a cathedral and then they began to build the local parish church and then got rid of the cathedral because they didn't have to go anywhere because they had a site where they were. Okay. I mean, that's a lot of work. I mean, obviously, as you said, they didn't have tools or anything, you know, um, metal tools. Yeah. So everything was done with flint. Yeah. So that's a lot of work to yeah. then fill it in. And also try and you know, pull these really heavy stones from a yeah. quarry to a site, stand them up. So that's how far was the quarry to where the stones ended up? Was or was that not known? I don't know. I don't think it's... I don't think it's too far away, but it's still some way to get them to drag it. Still longer than you'd want to carry a giant stone pillar. Yeah, because I mean, how are they going to be dragging it there? It's really interesting, though. There was a interesting that it's mostly animals. Yeah, there's a documentary like, on uh, National Geographic. So did it look a little bit like a, a native Indian totem pole? No, it's um, each animal is kind of by itself rather than being a totem pole. Oh, okay. So each statue kind of has its own animal on a face, but then they kind of intertwine upwards or onto the back. Cool. And the ones that have arms are just a stone block with two random arms with like kind of like hands at the bottom. Okay. But just on one side, so it looks like the like it looks like a person so you jumped into your TARDIS and where did you end up next in the timeline I decided to look at Mesopotamia so Mesopotamia is what is now known as the Middle East and includes parts of Southeast Asia and lands around the eastern Mediterranean Sea its history is marked by many important inventions that changed the world, including the concept of time, maths, the wheel, sailboats, maps and writing. And humans first settled in Mesopotamia in the Paleolithic era, 
and by 14,000 BCE those living in the area were living in small settlements in circular houses and by 3000 BCE a Mesopotamia was under the rule of the Sumerian people responsible for the earliest form of written language um, which they used to keep detailed clerical records I mean if you're going to write it's clearly what you're going to write first the rise of the state of Babylonia happened around 4000 years ago and that was by the ancient Akkadian speaking people of, of southern Mesopotamia with the city of Babylon located in present-day Iraq. Now the city of Babylon grew into one of the largest cities of the ancient world. In 539 BCE the legendary Persian king Cyrus the Great conquered Babylon and when the empire came under the rule of the Persians the fall of Babylon was complete. The Assyrian Empire under the leadership of Ashur Ubiliet rose around 1365 BCE in the areas between the lands controlled by the Hittites and the Kassites centered around Anatolia and Syria. Together along with other cultures they made up Mesopotamia. So as you can guess it's a little bit complicated when you're trying to look into magic and witchcraft. Yeah it sounds like a lot of beliefs are going to be jammed together. So what were you able to find out? The powers of the universe were thought to be harnessed by human kings for the overall well-being of the city-state or empire. Mesopotamian religion was polytheistic, with followers worshipping several main gods and thousands of minor gods. Some deities held different names in Sumerian and Akkadian, but they embodied various elements and aspects of the world. Underneath this pantheon of gods were a layer of demons such as Lamatsu, who threatened pregnant women and were said to have a lion's head, donkey's ears, teeth like that of a dog and the claws of an eagle. Natural disasters such as floods and epidemics of diseases weren't yet understood and so supernatural causes such as mamitu or curses laid by witches were often blamed. Numerous tablets containing incantations against witchcraft and evil demons have been found in 19th century excavations at Nineveh, an ancient Assyrian city of Upper Mesopotamia, located on the outskirts of Mosul in modern-day northern Iraq. But while incantations to protect against witchcraft have been found, no instructions of performing evil magic have been found. And it may be that evidence of evil magic won't be found, as the Mesopotamians believed that the use of magic in secret was evil, rather than the use of black magic specifically. So were the people scared of magic? Sumerians, Assyrians and Babylonians all sought the help from exorcists or Ishipu and omen interpreters Baru to gain protection from evil supernatural entities and to discover the future. Using amulets which often depicted the evil spirit they wanted to ward against. In the Babylonian Code of Harambe, there are some 282 laws which detail everything from workers' wages to divorce proceedings, as well as the methods to try those accused of witchcraft. And it's a manner that's quite similar to the later witch trials we see in Europe and America. And the quote I found for it is this. If a man has accused another of laying a kishpu, or a spell, upon him, but has not proved it, the accused shall go to the sacred river he shall plunge into the sacred river, and if the sacred river shall conquer him, he that accused him shall take possession of his house. If the sacred river shall show his innocence and he is saved, his accuser shall be put to death. He that plunged into the sacred river shall appropriate the house of him that accused him. So, as those that were found guilty of false witness were put to death, 
it isn't surprising that so far only one trial concerning witchcraft's actually been found. So really they were scared of evil magic, but magic itself was woven into their everyday lives. So just anybody could wield magic then? It wasn't reserved for special people? To become an Oshipu, the ability to read in a number of languages was needed, including the, the obscure forms of Sumerian, Akkadian and Aramaic. From Mesopotamian texts, we know that there were families that had several generations of Oshipu. The role was clearly an honourable profession. One of the crucial activities of the Oshipu was divination, which took two basic forms, astrology and ecstasy. Answers to divination weren't easy to come by, with the diviner having to perform elaborate rituals, and one complex first millennium ritual lasted from sunset to sunrise, and during this time a number of sheep would be sacrificed. When practising astrology, two sets of texts were important, the Enuma Anu Enil, or When the Gods Anu and Enil, was the major compendium of information on omens to be read from heavenly bodies, and these omens numbered over six and a half thousand recorded on between 68 and 70 tablets. In 16,000 BCE, priests developed rituals to counteract evil influences and collected them onto nine Maklu tablets. These tablets were passed down from generations of Ashipu for the next thousand years and eight of these tablets held a collection of a hundred incantations that enabled them to identify and tame evil magic while the ninth tablet gave instructions on a ritual to banish a curse, which included burning a figurine of the witch responsible for the evil magic. I find it interesting that it's sheep that were sacrificed, because normally it's, or at least in my head, normally it's something bigger. Yeah, I couldn't find anything that said it was something else, but I was a little bit confused about that. There's probably a reason. I guess the, the trouble is my brain's hardwired to think like lamb, lamb of God. I have to remember that that wasn't even like conceived of at the point this yeah. was taking place. It might have just been that that was the easiest thing to get hold of. Yeah, I mean, sheep have definitely been around a long time, haven't they? The, so the tablets are interesting, though, that people have taken the time to carve them. Yeah, well, I guess and like magic spells, wasn't it? It was like their way of passing down knowledge rather than writing it down they wrote it on a stone tablet yeah no i just the fact that they've survived as well mm-hmm. is really interesting so we've been to mesopotamia where are you taking us next so the next ancient civilization i looked at was of course ancient egypt magic was part of the fabric of the state of ancient egypt and heka or magic was the power that made creation possible. It was both a force of the universe and a set of practices, and rather than being good or bad, its effects depended on the intentions of those that were wielding it, with the gods more likely to misuse it than humans. Creator deities such as Nu, the watery abyss, were said to have used Heka to bring the world into existence out of the primordial chaos, and their myths and legends fed into magic spells, For example, the spells that Isis used to allow Osiris to copulate with her even though he was dead could also be used to help a dead husband impregnate his still-living wife. There were also a spectrum of practitioners of Heka, from priests of the major temples with long training in how to wield magic, 
to men and women that lived in villages who might protect cattle from crocodile spirits when crossing the river, to protecting a newborn baby from demons. Even the pharaohs, as descendants of the gods, were said to possess an element of Heka. Their pharaoh was the mediator between the gods and the world of men, and after death the pharaoh became divine, identified with Osiris, the father of Horus and god of the dead, and passed on his sacred power and position to the new pharaoh, his son. But we do have some female kings in the history of ancient Egypt. You can read more about these female kings in this month's post. You can. Were the gods important to wielding magic? Well, the god Heka personified magic, ensuring harmony in the cosmos, and his female counterpart, Waret Heku, or Great Magic, was often depicted in the form of a cobra. The gods themselves were often known to have shifted shape or combined forms. Take the female figure of Tauret, the protector of mothers and children. She had the body of a hippo with a crocodile on her back, human breasts and lion paws. But it's believed that by combining attributes in this way, it's not actually a sign of confusion, but an advanced magical technique in which the characteristics of a number of animals and humans were brought together for a powerful effect. And the image of Tauret appears on a number of objects along with the symbols for protection. One such object uh, are the so-called magical ones and these ones would be used to form protective circles inside of which a woman in labour would be placed um, and the magicians would then call upon deities to protect them from evil spirits that sought to harm the woman or child. These ones first appear around 2800 BCE and they have the heads of fierce animals such as panthers and jackals on their terminals. And the last example of ones that we find date to around um, 1650 BCE, um, when protection sh shifts from ones to the images on tombs and votive stelae. So was it only ones that were used in magic? No, words were both important and powerful to the ancient Egyptians. Protective spells were written on papyrus and worn on the body or hidden in containers or amulets. Magical inscriptions might be written on bowls and the person seeking protection would drink water from the bowl. Spells consisted of two parts, the written word and actions that needed to be taken. For the Egyptians, just speaking was an act that could cause things to happen and reciting or singing a spell was integral to magic. The written word wasn't only used for amulets. Spells were also written in spell books such as the Book of the Dead and the six volumes of the Secrets of the Magicians, which were kept in a number of temples and combined medicinal recipes with spells. Both the herbal remedies and the magic was based upon elaborate theories of how the ancient Egyptians believed the body worked. Just like, while you're talking about that, I know when beer was made, by Egypt, like mainly by Egyptian women, they would sing and say a spell over it as they were making it as part of the ritual of making it. So I guess that ties in with that. Yeah, it's pretty much an everyday kind of thing, I think. It's this whole thing of it being really integral to part of their civilization. Yeah. So tell us a little bit more about these amulets that you mentioned. So amulets were used in protection and one Egyptian catalogue lists some 275 main types of amulets, but there are probably many others not included in the catalogue. Some amulets were used to cure specific ills, but they were also used to protect specific parts of the body, 
So, for example, things worn on the belt could be used to protect people's feelings, as the ancient Egyptians believed that the stomach was the seat of emotions. And amulets of the Eye of Horus were also used to ward off a range of ills. I mean, that, that's kind of cool. It's quite advanced as well, because... Yeah, so people would wear them, like, on their head to get rid of headaches as well. well so you can kind of see why they thought the stomach was the seat of the emotions, because... When you feel things, you sort of feel it in your stomach. Like, we say that now, don't you? Like, um, when something's uncomfortable, it's like a punch to the gut. Or yeah. butterflies in your stomach when you see somebody cute. Or you're nervous. You're, yeah, or your stomach drops when something bad happens. Like, you can see where that connection's come from. Yeah. So we're in ancient Egypt. We're about to get back into the TARDIS. Yes, I'm going with all the Doctor Who themes. Okay. Mainly because Dinosaurs on a, on a Spaceship is one of my favourite episodes mm-hmm. and that has Nefertiti in it. So, back into the TARDIS, where are we off to next? So, I went way off my normal research track for our next culture and headed to ancient China. I always wanted to look um, more into their culture, so it's pretty much a good excuse to finally look. Now, magic in China has roots in ancestor worship before it developed into a sophisticated philosophical system that acknowledged the need to achieve balance in the cosmos. And magic was a way for the individual to gain a personal advantage within the universe. In the Yangshao period, between 5000 BCE and 3000 BCE, ceramics were being produced, which are thought to depict anthropomorphic creatures, which are believed to represent sorcerers, The first Chinese magicians were known as the Wu, which translates roughly to shamans, and they were believed to communicate with ancestors and spirits. Interestingly, the Wu were often female and performed rituals that would put them into a trance in which they could travel to the spirit world. And the Wu also acted as healers and dream interpreters, and they were believed to have some power over nature, um, with the ability to bring rain through a special rain dance in times of drought. By the Shan Dynasty, which was between 1600 and 1050 BCE. The Wu appeared to have a more formal role in the interpretation of oracles, and a Wu by the name of Wu Sham was reported to have been in charge of divination at the court of Tang, the first Shang ruler. While the Wu were revered for hundreds of years, after the Warring State period, which was between 403 and 221 BCE, new forms of shaman known as Azai who were all male appeared and the Wu were marginalised and scandals involving the Wu and their reported use of dark magic or coup only sped up their downfall. Please tell me you know more about these scandals because who doesn't love a bit of gossip? I do and it was two empresses that were the centre of them. By the time of the Han Dynasty which was between 206 and Uh, 206 BCE and 220 CE, fear of coup was so widespread that it became punishable by death. And Empress Chen Zhao, wife of Emperor Wu of Han, who ruled between 141 and 87 BCE, found herself involved in a coup scandal that saw 300 Wu executed. Most of what we know about Empress Chen Zhao comes from Chinese literature, so sources can be a bit problematic. What we can learn from the literature is that Chen Zhao struggled to provide a son for her husband and feared that he would stray from her into the arms of another of his concubines, Wei Zifu. 
And in order to prevent his wandering, Chen Zhao sought help from the use of witchcraft, even though the use of magic had become a capital offence, especially unforgivable amongst nobility. When the emperor discovered that Chen Zhao planned to use witchcraft to get rid of not only Wai Zifu, um, but a whole family, he promoted Wai Zifu to the highest ranking concubine and she would give birth to three daughters of the emperor. Chen Zhao reached out to a woman by the name of Chi Fu, to help her, but Chifu or Chufu uh, would act as a witness against Chen Zhao at her trial, confessing that the Empress had performed love magic, prepared potions, and nailed voodoo dolls of both the Emperor and herself depicting sexual acts. As a result of the trial, Chufu and 300 Wu, believed to have been involved in the magic, were executed, and Chen Zhao was deposed from her position in 130 BCE and exiled from the capital city, spending the rest of her life under house arrest at the Longgate Palace where she would die 20 years later. Now, while it looked like things were going well for Weezifu, who became the second longest reigning Chinese empress, reigning for a total of 38 years, things would also end badly for her when she too was caught, uh, caught up in a witchcraft scandal. Now, a year after Chen Zhao was exiled, Weezifu gave birth to a son, Lu Ju, and the following year she was named Empress. As she got older she began to lose favour with the Emperor and in 91 BCE she found herself in her very own witchcraft scandal. Her daughters were accused and put to death before Weezifu and her son, now the Crown Prince, were also accused. Both Lu Ju and Weezifu were forced to commit suicide and after their death the Emperor did discover that the scandal had been fabricated and the responsible parties were put to death. In 74 BCE, Weezifu's great-grandson, Emperor Shan, ascended the throne and he would eventually clear his great-grandmother's name, would rebuild her tomb into a larger mausoleum and gave her the title Wei Shi Hao, meaning Wei the Thoughtful Empress. The stories of both Empress Chen Zhao and Empress Weezifu show the fear of Ku and its practitioners, even in the highest parts of ancient Chinese society. Those who practiced Ku were believed to be able to pass disease into a victim's body or poison them outright. They were also said to be able to turn people into their slaves, totally obedient to the sorcerer's will. And in some cases, they were able to inf inflict even wider damage by unleashing the Wug, a magical pest that could destroy whole harvests of grain. In criminal law of the Han Dynasty, those who dare to poison people with Ku or teach others to do it will be punished, will be publicly executed. And it's likely that these law codes were based on earlier codes dating back to at least the 4th century BCE and perhaps even further to China's first legal codes and beyond. It's funny, though, isn't it? Because we see later queens accused of witchcraft when they fall out of favour as well, like Anne Boleyn. Yeah. Um, Eleanor of Aquitaine. Yeah, one of the articles that I read while I was doing my research basically said that witchcraft in the Han Dynasty became something that was used to get rid of people that were causing problems or that they didn't want anymore. It was like the perfect excuse to have them got rid of. And that's kind of what happened in the second part of that scandal. Um, she was obviously getting older, so she was starting to lose favour and one of the emperor's generals thought that he'd be able to stage a bit of a coup by getting rid of basically the crown prince. Mm. But he was then executed later, but by that point it's a bit late. Yeah. 
You said they were forced to commit suicide. Did it say how? So they were going to go and into battle with this general, but a message was passed to the emperor saying that his crown prince, his son, was going to come and kill him. So he then sent an army out and the army of the crown prince was defeated. So then they were forced to commit suicide. So I think, I don't, it doesn't say how, but they were both forced to. Is it, is it really suicide if you're forced to? I mean, I guess because you take your own life. Would you like to look at China more? Because their culture is amazing, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. It's... It's really interesting. It's been really interesting to look into the, just the magic aspect of it as well. So did they have any other kinds of magic? Yes, like lots of other cultures, they used it for divination. So the rulers of ancient China believed that their futures were preordained by divine will and to determine the best way to move forward. They used various kinds of divination and the earliest forms of divination in China date back to the Shang dynasty with the use of bone or shell. A heated rod would be used to pierce the bone or shell and a seer would then interpret the resulting cracks. And to begin with, the shoulder bones of an ox or sheep were most commonly used, but later the use of tortoise shell became more common. A plastron, which is the almost flat part of a tortoise or a turtle shell, from the period of Wu Ding of the Shang dynasty mentions Kuei, a diviner who conducted a crack-making ceremony. But surprisingly, it's actually the king that then re read the resulting cracks. He performed the prognosation as he was the descendant of the spirits that were being consorted and so he would have had a direct connection to them. In 563 BCE, when the king was away fighting a war, Lady Jiang, the mother of the king, took the place of the king as the closest relation to him. And in the final centuries of the Shang dynasty, the reading would fall to others as the method of prophecy changed to stalk casting. And clearomancy began around 1000 BCE and involved the casting of yarrow stalks to form either solid or broken lines in six lines and the resulting 64 possible hexagrams would then be interpreted in relation to a petitioner's question. The I Ching or Book of Changes is an ancient Chinese book which was intended primarily to be used in divination. The text itself is divided into 64 sections, each corresponding to a particular hexagram formed with the casting of yarrow stalks and I tried to understand it but got lost about a page into the process. So if anyone out there can explain it really simply to me, I'd appreciate it. It got very complex. It just reading what you've written was complex, let alone trying to understand it. So we're leaving ancient China. Where are we going to have the TARDIS take us next? I headed back to an old favourite, ancient Greece and Rome. So magic and religion in ancient Greece and Rome overlapped and it's been argued that even acts of religion themselves were acts of magic. So Greek society was individualistic and competitive. Many historians have seen Greek magic as an attempt to harness the cosmological powers for their own advantage through the use of spells and offerings to the gods. 
the most common type of spells is known as a defixo or a binding spell by which the practitioner seeks to bind or incorporate an enemy. Cursed tablets were popular and thousands of examples have been found across the Greek and Roman worlds. The earliest dates back to the Greek colony on Selenius in Sicily dating to the 6th century BCE and they begin to appear in Athens in the mid 5th century BCE and these tablets represent one of the most tangible forms of magic practiced in ancient times. Generally the spells were written down most often onto lead sheets but curses on wax tablets and papyrus have also been found. The curses were then deposited in a location considered to help the execution of the magic and these tablets tended to be uncovered in or near graves or in the sanctuaries of the Chthonic gods, um, those that are related to the underworld. And it's believed that the use of graves was so that the dead could deliver the message to the underworld. But it may also be that the spell was to force the deceased to carry out the curse for the living magic user. The graves normally chosen belonged to those who'd suffered untimely or violent deaths, with the graves of those who died before their time being the most popular. And cursed tablets of the Romans were often found in springs and wells in order to place them close to the underworld. Returning to this idea that religion and magic have been entwined, it's been argued that the act of offering sacrifice to the gods were in some way part of a spell. The Thesmophoria of for Demeter was one of the most widespread religious rites in Greece and involved throwing a dead pig into the earth and it would then be excavated later, chopped up and mixed in with the seeds before they were planted. It could be argued that this was a form of fertility magic. Um, scapegoat rituals were also used to purify entire cities and in these rituals the evils of the whole city were transferred onto either an animal or an unfortunate human who would then be driven beyond the bounds of the country, thus purifying the city. And these rituals stretch further in the offerings given to a city's resident god or goddess in order for protection. Like the ancient Egyptians, some ancient Greeks had tablets inscribed with magic formula to guarantee a favourable reception in the next world, which would be placed in their graves. So we talked about divination in ancient China, but obviously the Greeks are the most famous for their oracles. Both the ancient Greeks and Romans sought advice of oracles, much like the other ancient cultures that we've looked at. The Greek oracles varied from small local shrines to large international centres such as the Oracle of Delphi. The city of Delphi had long traditions of being the centre of the world, with one myth that said Zeus himself named the site the navel of Gaia. The area was believed to be sacred to her, the mother goddess of the earth, who, according to legend, placed her son, a huge serpent named Python, to guard the spot before he was slain by the infant god Apollo. When Apollo's arrows pierced the serpent, its body fell into a fissure and great fumes arose from the crevice as its carcass rotted. All those who stood over the gaping fissure fell into sudden, often violent trances, and in this state it was believed that Apollo would possess the person and fill them with divine presence. Named after the serpent, the seer of Delphi was named the Pythia. Now only a pure, chaste and honest young virgin was viewed to be the most appropriate vessel for such a divine role. 
after being purified by fasting, drinking holy water, which was said to inspire prophecies, bathing in the sacred Castilian spring, and undergoing a ritual purification involving barley smoke, the Pythia would assume her position upon a tripod seat in the adyum, the holiest part of the temple, clasping laurel weeds in one hand and a dish of Cassotis spring water in the other. Positioned above the fissure, the sacred fumes of the ancient vanquished serpent would wash over her, allowing her to enter the realm of the divine. And in some ways, this preparation itself could be seen as ritualistic or magical. The Greek oracles were also popular with the ancient Romans, especially after the incorporation of the Greek world into the Roman Empire in 146 BCE. But another way that the Romans would divine the future was through hieruspices, who would examine the entrails of animals, often sheep liver or gallbladder, in order to foretell the future. They would also interpret all portents or unusual phenomena of nature, especially thunder and lightning and unusual monstrous births. This was practiced by the Etruscans in Rome, but did not become part of state religion. And later in the empire, Emperor Theodosius closed the oracles and shrines between 390 and 391 CE in an attempt to end the pagan cults during the rise of Christianity. And we see significant prohibitions against magic, which gradually increased with the rise of Christianity and the 12 tablets specifically outlawed the use of charms to harm crops. Magic became conflated with the broader idea of mischief or harmful magic, and the Roman word vinificum could mean uh, drug or poison, and much like the Greek word pharmacum, it usually referred to the magical substances, the active ingredients that made harmful magic possible, such as herbs that could turn people into wolves, and magic in the Roman Empire occurs in hybrid forms, mixing together influences from the local provincial cultures. And of course, we have the myths and legends of the ancient Greeks that include witchcraft and magic, such as Circe, the sorceress daughter of Helios, the sun god, and the ocean nymph Perse. And we also have the goddess Hecate, who had a particularly large wheelhouse associated variably with magic, witchcraft, the night, the moon, ghosts, and necromancy. She was the only daughter of Titans Perseus and Astrea, and she played a crucial role in the myth of Persephone, abduction by Hades. As the only witness to the kidnapping besides Helios, she used her iconographic torch to help Demeter scour the earth for her lost daughter. Because we're taught about the ancient Greeks in school, we kind of associate them as being the most famous for having an oracle but as you've shown throughout your section it it wasn't just them it's found throughout yeah i think humans probably have always wanted to know what's going to happen i think that's probably just something that's inbuilt within us to want to know what's going to happen if something bad's going to happen how do we stop it yeah because that doesn't stop just because christianity starts no and I mean, even today, people read their horoscope, tarot readers, palm readers. Fun fact, first horoscope was from Mesopotamia. Really? Mm-hmm. Was it gibberish nonsense? Uh, I don't know, but it showed a <laughs> change from people dividing the future of an empire to a personal one. That's pretty interesting. Because when you think about the prophecies... We never really get them for the average man or woman on the street. They're always for a ruler or a general. Yeah. 
but then I guess it wouldn't be as interesting if somebody was like is my husband cheating on me should I marry Bob will Bob propose next week <laughs> why is he called Bob kind of do with an oracle about now to tell us how 2020 is gonna go I mean honestly I'm not sure I actually want to know that's that's fair mm -mm. so out of the cultures you looked at if you had to go back in time to one which one would you most like to go back and practice magic in I think maybe Mesopotamia because I quite like the fact that if someone accused me of witchcraft got into a river and basically got swept away I got their house <laughs> so people were actually like afraid to point the finger I mean that's fair it was just so complicated to do it I read something that said that they you know they believed that their gods would know who was doing the evil magic so really they didn't need to point the finger because the gods already knew what about you I don't know. I mean, maybe, maybe ancient Greece or Egypt, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> All of them. I just want to go through and try them. Yeah. I think because it's so ingrained within their religion, it's hard to like pinpoint exactly what magic is and what is just everyday life. Yeah, definitely. I guess it, kind of becomes interchangeable doesn't it or overused maybe the yeah. word magic it's definitely difficult to to see like when you look at ancient cultures because it's not written down i mean you're not going to just write about your everyday life they didn't tend to just do a dear diary today i milked the cow and that's not really something that's found whereas when you got to later cultures where they did basically write everything down you find a lot more evidence of magic. Yeah, I guess if you've got to chisel it into a stone, that's a lot of hard work, and not, ev not everybody would have known how to write, and thus wouldn't be able to have someone write it down, I guess. That's the thing with like oral traditions. So much of it is lost. Yeah, and I guess the further down you get, the more like Chinese whispers it gets as well. Yeah. Things get changed. Especially when it starts... When witchcraft can be wielded as a weapon, it changes as well. Yeah. Thank you for listening to the first part of this month's After Dark podcast. In the next part, it's Gemma's turn to talk about magic and witchcraft. It is. And I'm going to be kind of picking up where you've left off with the rise of Christianity. And then I'm going to, we're going to be coming forward until today. As I said at the beginning, it's not going to cover everything because that would be so much more than an hour. I've tried to give an overview, but pick pieces or cases that aren't as well known. And as we said, bits that have been missed or we've not gone as in depth into are likely to pop up as posts or podcasts. So we wouldn't be able to put these podcasts together if it wasn't for our patrons. And you, if you'd like to, can become a patron from as little as a pound a month. And that supports us and helps us put out more content and we'll give you access to bonus materials which are coming that will be patron only you'll also get early access and depending on the tier you select there'll be other bonuses 
if you can please head over to our website or follow the links on social media and have a look at our patreon page so until next time remember it's all just a bunch of hocus pocus <laughs>